And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Kara Tippetts is our guest tonight. The book, The Hardest Peace, Experiencing Grace in the Midst of Life's Hard. So Kara, walk us through the process. So you moved to Colorado Springs, you and your family, your husband Jason, part of a new church plant there. You have to deal with the Waldo Canyon fire. You have a fall in the bathroom. You pass out. Um, there were some heart-related issues and got banged up pretty hard hitting the uh, the uh, tile and the porcelain in the bathroom. Shortly thereafter, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. At what point did it go from just the breast cancer diagnosis to something a little bit more serious, a little bit more um, ominous? Yeah, it, it turned to metastatic cancer um, the fall of 2013. You know, I, I in the summer of 2012 is when I was diagnosed and did uh, chemotherapy, mistake, double mastectomy, radiation. And we went away and enjoyed the summer together as a family. And then in the fall, I came back, and because of my particular kind of cancer, which is hormone-driven, we had decided to have my ovaries taken out. And when they went in to do that surgery is when they found that my reproductive system um, was full of cancer. So they metastasized so throughout. the new diagnosis. Mm. And that was in September of 2013, just Correct. a little over a year ago. Um, Correct. And through that, of course, uh, I imagine a whole battery of surgeries and MRIs and CAT scans and chemotherapy. Yeah, all of it. CAT scans, I call them scary snorts. I, uh, I have gone, and now it has also, cancer has also entered my lymph system behind my heart and in my pelvic area. It's in my bones and has also, is also now in my brain. Hmm. Is there a timetable that the doctors have discussed with you? You know, I don't, I, I, my doctor has never talked like that with me. I don't know if it's my specific doctor. Um, he's just like, care, we do the next thing. We fight with the next thing we have to fight with, and we keep moving. And I think probably the nature of me being so young, um, he, and, and he's also a believer, so I think he is very cognizant of the fact that he is not the determiner of my days and has, has been in practice long enough to know that, you know, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, I, I heard it once said by a physician that uh, when we were born, there is a date stamp on our birth date, but he's looked at the bottom of every baby he's ever delivered, and he's never seen an expiration date. Uh, that's that's right. something that only that's God, exactly something only God Himself knows. And yet, exactly. you you live with the lingering thought that this may be a case where you do not um, grow old. Your children do not bury you as an old woman, but as a fairly young woman. How do you? How do you help explain this to your children? You have four children. Um, one, as you say, is is fairly young, five, six years old. It's difficult to help kids really understand this. They're at the stage when they're still trying to learn about what the beginning of life is about, let alone to yeah. try to comprehend what the end of life is about. You know, it's just a long conversation. And it's what Jason and I are both communicators. We're both talkers. We're question askers. So we pursue the hearts of our kids, and we allow them to pursue ours. And, you know, kids know when there's grief in the house, even if the words aren't spoken. And so as the questions come, we fight to be very honest with them. But we're also discerning when, when the story is too heavy, and we ask them to trust us, that we're not keeping something from them, but we're trying to protect them in their childhood. So it's a fine line. You know, at times it feels like we're walking on a cliff's edge. But um, we pray a lot and ask the Lord to give us discernment. And, you know, last night I was in bed with my oldest, who's 13, and we just cried. We just cried um, as she's watching me get weaker. And um, I said, you know, it's hard. It's sad. And, you know, I saw a, a video yesterday of a, a man dying of ALS. 
And he said something really profound that I that encouraged my daughter. He said, "I am not, I am not thankful for ALS. I am thankful in ALS." Mm. And 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 then I looked at in Thessalonians, and I saw that to be true. It was Paul saying, "In all circumstances, be grateful." And I thought, "Wow, how profound that." I can grieve and be sad for the cancer in my body, but in the midst of it, I get to be grateful to Jesus, who has who has secured my salvation. You describe in your book having gone through, um, I'll characterize it as, as a, a difficult childhood. You had a father who struggled with a lot of anger issues. Um, probably in today's nomenclature, we would say that he was a man in desperate need of some anger management classes. That sets you on a stage of early rebellion. You describe having gone through the experience of uh, drugs and boys and booze and, and finally gone through all of that, having a life and changing encounter with Jesus Christ. But I think it's, it's probably fair to say that your, your childhood wasn't the most pleasant. Are there moments when you are upset with God or angry because your four children are going through a difficult childhood too and through no fault yeah. of their own much like yours you never asked for an angry father you just got one and your four children never asked for a mommy with cancer but they've got one. Oh goodness you're a good question asker that is really that is really the heart of my own battle in the place that Jesus meets me because um I so enjoy being a mother of my children. I so enjoy being a wife of my excellent husband. I so enjoy the community in which I live and get to um, know and share Jesus. And so for me, I often grieve. I feel like I feel like a little girl at a party that's having a great time, enjoying the best of life, and being asked to leave. And some days I want to lay down and throw a fit, and it's it's as though God the Father is saying, "You have no idea, Carrie. I have a better party waiting for you. I have something better." But I have I struggle with my imagination for that because I'm I'm not in the season of life where my kids are grown and I see them walking with the Lord. Those things that you expect at end of life, you know, my kids are so young. I want to be here. I want to be the one to disciple and love them well. And yet God is covenantal. And when I got this diagnosis, I went on a long hike and just talked to the Lord and said, all right, if you're asking me to receive this, then I trust you to show up for my family in stunning ways that I can't even imagine, that this will be the better story for them, even though I can't picture it. But I can look at those hard edges in my own story, and they're the beautiful places where God showed me how much I needed Him. And so I hate it, but I but I also can see the beauty in it that this this broken edge in my children's life will be the place that they see how needy they are for Jesus as well, like I am. Has it changed your relationship with your children and and certainly with your husband Jason? Oh, for sure. I feel, you know, I feel I just I feel like I come from a heart of gratitude, and and I remember. I mean, I starting this battle out. I am not a good sick person. I've never been a good sick person. And so I went to our elders at our church, and I just said, you know, I don't believe that illness gives me permission to be unkind. And in, if I look at my past, I did let myself be unkind when I felt bad. I would isolate myself from family. I'd pull back. And I just really prayed that my elders would, would pray for me, that I would be kind, that I would show up for life still, that I would meet my family in love instead of grumpiness. And God has been so faithful to us. We have enjoyed each other. We we have made memories and snuggle and read books together and enjoy one another and treasure it, really. Um, I certainly treasure it. Uh, you know, I think as my kids look back, they will as well treasure it. People that go through this experience typically will 
end up modifying one of two viewpoints and, and how they they live out the, the, the final stages of life. It either dramatically changes the way they see dying or it dramatically changes the way they see living. In this case, which, which was the stronger of the two for you? Hmm. I think living. I think living. Um, you know, I, I, the, the, the dying pill is one I'm still trying to swallow. It's a giant hard pill to get down. And, but yet, before that comes, I'm living, living near to God as I can and enjoying His grace in the small and big moments of my life and, and showing up. Um, but it's getting harder. You know, I feel myself fading. I feel weakness. I feel, uh, I, I, I do feel my illness is, is weakening me. And so I think God is about to see a tipping point where He's going to teach me the beauty in dying well as well. Mm. You're at a stage in life where, as you point out, day-to-day things become more and more of a struggle. Um, Time becomes more precious. In sharing your story in a public fashion, you've written the book, you're doing radio interviews, things of that sort. You you do a daily blog, Mundane Faithfulness. Um, Is this also in part as you share your story in a very public fashion about leaving legacy, leaving spiritual legacy for your children, a form, a manner in which you might document this. You mentioned about your youngest daughter being about five years old, um, being able to leave behind a tangible record, so to speak, so that when she becomes old enough and starts asking the questions and can absorb the answers, has some sort of resource to go to to say, here's a repository that represents the legacy of who my mother was. Is that part of what you're doing here? Absolutely. I feel like for the first um, two years, it was uh, me just sharing my heart and putting it all out there. And, and I feel through these words that I've left, these countless, countless words, that where my kids search for me, they will find me. And hopefully also find Jesus in that place and his comfort and his grace and his nearness. And so, I'm curious by that. Is there something that the rest of us are missing then? Because you're working at at leaving an intentional legacy yeah. here and and so many of us i think Kara, live a very unintentional life. By that, I mean we get up, we go to work, we come home, we pay the bills, we feed the kids, we put them to bed, we repeat it five days a week. Sundays and Saturdays look a little bit different, but largely we just kind of go through the paces, and there's not a lot of intentional living, if you know what I mean. It's it's more by accident, and at the end, we've sometimes spooled through not 36 or or 40 years of life, but we've spooled through 70 or 80 years of life and look back and say, well, where's the legacy? Yes. Yes, I think that's a fantastic point. I feel like um, what you said, and I think that's why people show up to read what I write. My, you know, I don't have 15,000 followers that have cancer. I maybe have a few hundred of my whole following that are also in the battle of cancer with me. But mostly it's, it's women like myself in the mundane moments of life, and they're looking at my story and they're thinking, wait a second, maybe I should cherish this moment. Maybe I shouldn't just get through it. Maybe I should actually embrace it. You know, and the irony irony with that is that we're all terminal. All of us. The only difference is you have a little greater certainty of of what that terminal timeline might look like but but then again you know i might leave here after this radio broadcast with a full intention of arriving at home and enjoying a meal and sitting down with family and yet that might not happen if i'm killed in an automobile accident on the way home we're all terminal we just don't know the timeline yeah i agree you know i've called it the grace of the long goodbye i know 
I know that I'm going to heaven. Everybody else is too, but but I've been given this long goodbye to get to fight to live well with my family and love them well and leave them well loved and well cared for and and that they are secure in my my care and love for them. And but that's all of our callings, isn't it? You know, it's all of our callings to to love and kindness. That love never ends. And and in Philippians it says abound more and more in love. But so often we 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 are comfortable in our love. I'm comfortable in my routine, and maybe I'm not abounding more this year than I abounded last year. Um, and so that has been my high privilege to get to share that. Like, how are you? How are you growing in love? Because that love never ends. The love I invest in my children is going to go long past my last breath. It's going to meet them on their hard days when I'm not there to meet them. If you've just joined us, Kara Tippetts is with us today. She has a blog called Mundane Faithfulness. And she has a new book out where she shares the story of her terminal cancer diagnosis, the spiritual legacy, and the impact that it's had on her life and the life of her family, and her relationship with her husband, and ultimately with her God. The book, The Hardest Peace, Expecting Grace in the Midst of Life's Hard. We'll take a brief time out. Come back with more of Lifeline in just a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Kara Tippetts is with us today. We're talking about her book, The Hardest Peace. She was diagnosed first in the summer of 2012 with breast cancer. That uh, diagnosis turned terminal just about a year ago in September of 2013. Kara, I want to talk about perhaps the most important, most intimate relationship that you have, and that is your relationship with your God. I'm I'm trying to think here during the break and put myself in your position, and I'm imagining that I'm I'm, I'm kind of my my emotions, my feelings are flowing from um, a sense of anticipation of being done with the chemo and the pain and the weakness and the hair loss and having that new glorified body and and finally being in the very presence of God Himself. Then there's the other side of me that says. When I get up there, I am going to give God a piece of my mind. How dare he allow this to happen when I'm at the peak of my life in a, in a, in a, in a young marriage relationship that has decades to go by comparison and the mother of four young children. God, how dare you? Where do you struggle? Where, do, where, where, where as you think about that, that encounter when it will happen? Where's your heart and mind? You know, my heart might land there one day, but it hasn't yet. Um, after I found, we first found cancer in my brain, my husband found me crumpled on the floor in the corner of our bedroom, and we were weeping together, and I said, can we fight to have a broken heart instead of an angry heart? Mm. And, and that is the path we have chosen, and it has, it's not easy. Sometimes the anger feels easy, and uh, brokenness is hard. Um, and yet, that's the journey we've been on. I, what has happened with my writing is I use my writing to point out the places that God has shown up for me. That as He's asked me to walk this hard story, the places He has cared for me and gently and tenderly loved me. And so when you, you know, Ann Voskamp writes that if you don't, if we don't write down our thankfulness, then we're really not thankful. And it's the same with grace, getting to write down the way that these undeserved gifts, and that's what grace is to me. I couldn't earn them. I couldn't, I couldn't earn Jesus and his salvation and his dying on the cross. I couldn't earn my community carrying me in ways that I can't reciprocate. I can't, I can't reciprocate anymore. 
And yet, when I started naming those things, my heart stayed tender to the Lord mm. and stayed soft. And, and, you know, His name is Emmanuel, God with us. And so as He's given us this hard story to receive, He's also given us Himself. You know, He's not only, it's like communion, not only is He is the host, He is the meal. Um, and so that is that is Jesus, and that, that is how I am carried, and that is how I can be peaceful and certain of, of what's to come. Is that what also perhaps of necessity uh, defines us as believers and I ask that question because frequently when a non-believer goes through the the similar experience and we know from scripture that you know it rains on the just and the unjust uh, when it rains on the unjust they typically shake their hand or their fist toward heaven and say where is God uh, yeah. in in this case is it a matter of saying here is God finding God in the midst of the pain the the disappointment the why God questions and 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 have you encountered him in new ways that maybe you, you hadn't before or wouldn't have without the cancer diagnosis? You know, somebody articulated it well yesterday. They said, for, for so many years, I was in love and, um, and, and looking at the resurrected Jesus. And then he said, through my suffering, and this gentleman had ALS, I'm, I'm loving and looking at the suffering Jesus. The Jesus that could have taken himself off the cross, the Jesus that didn't have to suffer in brokenness, brokenness in, in all areas of life. And so, you know, in, in Philippians 3, it says not only do we get to know Jesus, we get to partner with him in suffering. And so, so much of the, our Christian culture has been bent on winning like our American culture. And I'm just so thankful to know the truth that, that suffering is not a mistake and that it's not God's absence in my life but is the place that he showed me how needy I am for him and that he is my good he is the only good in me. You know, it's interesting so often particularly in western Christianity we uh, we read right through right past that that passage of scripture where Paul writes uh, wanting to know him in both the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection and that power of the resurrection part that overcoming death part boy that sounds exciting and real and electrifying yep. but that uh, that fellowship of the suffering ooh that that sounds painful and uncomfortable <laughs> and no way he that. was up on a cross I don't want I don't want to do that and yet it's it's really a package isn't it and one doesn't mean as much without the other. It's hard to comprehend the grace that is shown toward us, that unmerited favor of what Christ did on the cross. It's really hard to comprehend the totality, the depth and breadth of that, if we can't see it in the life, uh, in the light of his suffering, can, can we? That's right. And I think that's, why, I think that's why we are so hurting our culture with our shallow Christianity that um, promotes health and wealth. And even, you know, I, I, I see the temptation. I, you know, I want health. I certainly am no stranger to wanting wealth. And yet when we, when we spend our healthy years a student of our faith, when suffering comes, we can look to Jesus and say, no, this isn't you walking away from me. And so that's often my challenge when I get to speak is, if you're healthy, be a student of your faith for the day that your suffering comes, that you will know his goodness in suffering. And if, if it's not your calling, you'll be called to walk with somebody like me. And because and, there are days I need the people walking with me to remind me of God's goodness. I need them to hold up my arms and, and remind me that Jesus is present and with me. Because it's hard. It's a hard. We are not meant to live our lives on an island alone. And, and our culture says control, win, independence. And brokenness says I need others. I can't do this alone. And I need support. 
we want to in our in our Christian walk in our journey with the Lord. Uh, we want to experience grace. We want to uh, hopefully understand what that grace is and what it means, and and at least to the degree to which we're intellectually capable of since we you know we see through that glass darkly right now until we see him um face to face but to want to be able to somehow comprehend um his grace and experience his grace i was struck by the the subtitle of the book and i know sometimes publishers give the names and the titles and the subtitles of the books and oftentimes authors have have nothing to do with it but it struck me when i first looked at it i read it as experiencing grace in the midst of life's hard and then i read it again and went oh no expecting grace um, that's a little bit different, is it? You you expect God to show up in this illness, don't you? Absolutely, I do. And I see somebody even said, "I want another word like hard circumstance, hard cancer." But but the the, the theme of the book is hard. We all in our lives experience the hard edges in life. Either marriages we don't expect, or parenting is harder than we expected. Underemployment, unemployment. So my story isn't simply about cancer. It's in the places of your life where life isn't what you expected, do you press into Jesus? Do you know Him? Are you looking for Him to fulfill the lonely place of your heart? Or are you filling it with other things, with work, with alcohol, with lust, with things that are not of the Lord? Because that's all of us. All of us have have places where we're disappointed in what life is and how it didn't turn out how we dreamed it to be. But yet, in those places, we can expect God and say, okay, God, this isn't what I expected. Perhaps I made an idol of marriage. Perhaps I made an idol of parenting. Can you show me your goodness and who you are in the midst of this hard in my life? And he has shown up. I mean, God has shown up for me in such big and small ways. It's been beautiful. As you press into Jesus, um, I, I think um, few of us perhaps ponder the epitaph that will be left behind. I know occasionally a celebrity might uh, read of yeah. uh, their own obituary in the newspaper because uh, uh, some publisher has a you know a dozen well-known celebrities' obituaries already written up and ready to drop into the newspaper in a moment's notice once somebody dies and somebody makes a mistake and there they find themselves reading about their own death in the newspaper. Um, yeah. But I, I wonder for you, um, you're in a position where you could literally. Um, at this stage in life, write your own epitaph. And, and mm. in that process, what do you want it to say? What legacy do you wish to leave behind to be remembered by not only in terms of how your husband, Jason, sees you and your four daughters, but, but as, a, as a lover of Jesus? Um, what, does that, what does that epitaph, what, does you want, what do you want that to look like? What a good question. It's a big question. I think my, I would say my first answer was here is a woman that was loved well by God. Mm. And from that place, she spilled that love onto those around her. Because um, that's, that's the gift, isn't it? That I get to be an overflower of God's love. And, um, and that's, that's the only worthy thing I've given my life to, really. I would imagine for you, bedding down at the end of a, of a long, hard day, and sometimes one filled with lots of physical struggle, um, hugging your, your four kids goodnight and falling asleep beside your husband takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? It does. You know, uh, my husband and I touched feet in the night, and then about three in the morning, my Lilith went, always, I can hear her coming, and she sneaks in bed with us. Hmm. And there's this part of me that feels like this, gratitude in her coming 
that she won't get to know me as long as the oldest and she's trying to multiply it in the night. And I love it. Where before, when the child came, it, the answer was like, oh no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be as strong or energetic tomorrow. This is interrupting my sleep and all I want is a good night's sleep. And now it's like, oh, I have this opportunity at three in the morning to kiss all over the face of my five year old. Mm. And what a gift that is. And, you know, it, it does. I mean, you, you see, you see these big and little moments and they mean so much. Kara, I sure appreciate your time. I know that in part your sharing with us here tonight um, has been a sacrifice of time with your family. Thank them mm-hmm. for sharing you with us. Absolutely. Um, I, I loved your story, and I want to encourage listeners to follow your story as you continue to blog. And folks can read that blog at MundaneFaithfulness.com. That's MundaneFaithfulness.com. Uh, this book is a book that I think many of us can take so much away from um, in life's lessons. Um, again, the title is The Hardest Peace, Expecting Grace in the Midst of Life's Hard, newly published by... David Cook, and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. Kira, again, thanks so much for the time and uh, your graciousness, and uh, we'll continue to pray for you. I appreciate you having me. This was a great interview. I appreciate it. Thank you. Again, on the web, you can follow her story as she journals her struggles, her triumphs, and um, her experiencing God's grace day by day at MundaneFaithfulness.com. And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, according to the old calendar on the wall, graduation time is just about here. And while it's certainly an important moment of a sense of great pride by many parents to see their child walk across the stage in the cap and gown, diploma in hand, having accomplished a solid 12-year career in high school, this means a lot of things. Not only a sense of um, accomplishment, but then, too, it raises questions about what's next. For many students, that means continuance of their scholastic career by moving into college and university. Students may, in many cases, stay close to home, in fact, live at home and maybe attend a couple-of-year junior college. Others might be making plans to head off somewhere else to college. Well, whatever the plans might be, at the end of the day, we have to admit, this moment in time for students who have graduated from high school and are now beginning their scholastic career at college or university are no longer children, but they're also not quite yet adults. That raises a lot of questions and concerns for parents who understand that there's going to be a loss of control at a lot of levels. And one of the biggest arenas where we seem as parents to worry the most is, did we do the right job to train up our child in the fear and respect and ammunition of the Lord so that they will be able to live out their own faith? Essentially, are they ready for the life that will meet them ahead and how do we know? We'll answer some of those questions as Neilan Brown joins us. He, by the way, Executive Director of Focus Leadership Institute at Focus on the Family. And Neilan, great to have you on the program. Thank you so very much. Wonderful to be with you today. Boy, this is a, this is a question that a lot of adults struggle with about their uh, children graduating from high school as much even the students themselves are wondering, gee, yeah. am I ready? What's going to be facing me out there in the big wide world ahead? That's it. Yes, indeed. It's, it's a big question. And I think for a lot of parents, it's a looming question, you know, <laughs> that, that they're looking at for some time as they're, you know, watching the years go by, blowing out the birthday candles and all that good stuff. But I think for a lot of students, sometimes for them, it comes as a bit of a shock, you know, that, that it's that first night that you're in the dorm by yourself. No one's forcing you to go to class. Uh, so, but I know certainly for parents, it is a big concern for sometimes sending them off um, into continuing education away from home. You know, we see this as sending our children 
Putin off to get the answers, the answers that they're going to need about life and who they are as a person and preparing them for uh, either marriage and or a career, maybe both. Uh, But oftentimes we find that many of these students now free from the day-to-day routine that happened under mom and dad's roof. Yeah, they go to school to get the answers, but they tend to oftentimes come back with an awful lot of questions about their faith. Indeed, indeed. Uh, we, We find that with many of the students that we serve here at the Focus Leadership Institute, they are wrestling with very big questions. And I do, I do think we, we send our students off to college campuses to get the answers, but on a lot of campuses throughout the U.S., God is no longer a part of that answer and or that equation. So students do find themselves sitting in classrooms and, you know, and kind of circulating amongst populations much broader and much different um, than what they knew at home. And when you're in those classrooms, it does raise some pretty big questions. It certainly can. For parents, I guess the big concern is that it seems to be a time when many of the familiar safety nets are missing, meaning uh, the child is perhaps in a different part of the state or in another state altogether, so they have a different set of friends, they're not attending the same church anymore, much of the usual network that we sort of rely upon to be there for our kids. All of that has changed dramatically, and now all of a sudden they're they're in this place where we know that there are competing worldviews at a lot of levels, and, and I guess therein lies the big concern for many parents. Will my son or daughter be able to survive absent the safety net that's been there for the first 18 years of their life. Indeed, indeed. That, that's, that is the big question. And one of the things that we find, I've spent a lot of time around college students, and I've seen those who continue to be committed to their faith, as well as those who slip away. We can provide those safety nets while we're within the home. However, a relationship with Jesus Christ is quite personal. I think one of the mistakes that can be made is to expect the safety net to get, to get the individual child into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, I heard one brother of mine uh, put it well, who works with a ministry called Access that works with high schoolers. And one of the things he says is, I had to move from renting my parents' faith in Christ to owning my, my own mm-hmm. faith in Christ. And I think a lot of times we put so much trust into the safety nets that we neglect to prepare our students for ownership. Does, does that kind of make sense? It does, and, and I think it leads to the old adage that um, God has no stepsons or stepdaughters. We are all immediate direct heirs. <laughs> and so the relationship needs to be fostered as such that it is a personal, intimate, direct relationship relationship and not one that's lived out vicariously through mom and dad. There there you have it. That's exactly the point. And here's the good news. For parents who may hear this and think, boy, I don't know if I did the best job helping my students to own their faith. I know I sent them to church a lot. I, I know I had them in this group and in that group, but I really didn't spend a lot of time talking about these things. The good news is it's never too late. Statistics still bear out that even in the midst of students leaving home, um, having all of these various professors and hearing these worldviews, and in addition to technology, which is bombarding our students with ideas and worldviews before they even leave home. And I think at this juncture, one of the fallacies we live amongst is our students aren't hearing other voices while they're at home. They're hearing those voices by elementary and middle school with these iPhones and iPads and, you know, all these smartphones and things. But research still bears out parents have strong influence, even during the college years. So if you haven't been having that renting or leasing conversation, they're graduating now, it's not too late to start. You're still mom. You're still dad. Your voice carries a lot of weight. What about the concern, and I think it's a little legitimate one, many parents would like to think that as they send their children off to a college that maybe the son or daughter is going to be uh, there on college campus um, expressing a vibrant faith and sharing with others around them, acknowledging the fact that uh, unless they're fortunate enough to attend a, a Christian-based college or university, that they're probably going to have plenty of witness. 
witnessing opportunities. So there's one part of the equation. Then that kind of runs from being concerned about them having the ability to properly express their faith to what it's going to be like when they have to come in and defend their faith when challenged by other worldviews and differing religion views. And then, let alone that, even the ability of a child simply maintaining their own faith. Indeed, indeed. Well, Paul the Apostle writes a couple of letters to a very young pastor named Timothy. And in his second letter to him, you have Paul, who's later in ministry, Timothy, who's much younger in the faith. He knows that Timothy's going to be contending with a lot of pluralistic worldviews and all these various gods and all these things. And Paul's advising him. One of my favorite verses is Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, when he tells him, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed and rightly handles the word of truth. The, the preparation to defend, one, to defend one's faith is directly linked to one's understanding of their faith. I think a lot of students get concerned or scared to even speak about Christ, because to be honest, they're not, they're not totally sure what they believe about Christ. And Paul basically tells Timothy, hey, have a zeal for Scripture. Have a zeal for learning about God. I think we, we push our students towards learning in a lot of areas, but a lot of the questions I have is, are we really putting resources, I mean, I mean good resources like a True You, which was done by Focus on the Family and actually filmed here in the Focus Leadership Institute, or the Truth Project, or even looking at international ministries like uh, Robbie Zacharias International Ministry. That, that wonderful apologist, Ravi Zacharias, who wrote a great book that I think every college student should read <laughs> called Jesus Amongst Other Gods, because many of our students who've grown up in a Christian home have never spent exhaustive time around um, Hinduism or Buddhism, you know, or Mormonism or any of these other um, uh, paths of faith as they're expressed in the college community, or even books that are more popular, like Lee, Sto- Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for Creation. I think one of the things that we may, one of the ways we can help our students be more comfortable with defending their faith and expressing their faith is when we give them resources and don't just have them memorize scriptures blindly. <laughs> but we actually, not only do we give them resources, but we read the same resources and we have discussions about the evidence of the resurrection, the truth claims of Jesus Christ, and the legitimacy of the biblical canon. It's, it's simple to answer questions once you have them, and I've seen students who can strongly defend their faith position in a loving manner through grace and truth as Christ uh, gave us as an example. But I think we really have to go deep in helping our students understand it's important to study and know your faith. Absolutely. And then the other thing, too, is the balancing the time. And I want to talk about that when we come back after a brief time out. If you've just joined us, Neilan Brown is with us, Executive Director of the Focus Leadership Institute, located at Focus on the Family. We're talking about the challenges, the worries and concerns that you as a parent have as your son or daughter heads off to uh, high school, oh, pardon me, as your son or daughter heads off to college or university, having completed their studies at the high school level this May or June, and, and what are the concerns and what are the important points that we need to keep mindful of as parents and remind our children of? We'll talk about that next as our conversation continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to Lifeline. We're visiting today with Neilan Brown, Executive Director of Focus on the Family's Focus Leadership Institute. We're talking about uh, that exciting time in your son or daughter's life when they graduate from high school, but then that very fearful time when, in many cases, they're stepping out into the world without the safety nets for the very first time as they head off to college or university. And what does it mean for them to be able to express, defend, and maintain their faith? And, you know, Leland, I'm reminded, you mentioned just before the break about the importance to continue to speak truth and, and continue to recognize the influence that parents have on their children's lives. You know, we, we start out with the speech that we give our son or daughter when they attend their first day at school or when they go off on their first date or when they attend their prom. 
I guess there's another important speech that needs to be given as they head off to um, college or university. And I guess part of it comes down to reminding them about a balance in life, because let's face it, they're going to be in a new environment where they've got newfound freedoms, new responsibilities, new friends. And I guess they have to be reminded to make sure that amongst all the things that are so new, to make sure that they carve out time for their old, quote unquote, faith. Indeed, indeed. God repeatedly calls us to be good stewards throughout Scripture. I think one, one of the issues that many students run into in the college environment is, as we look at education today as a nation, we see it simply as preparing individuals to fit somehow into the economic system. And therefore, we lose the grander narrative of us being good stewards of the talents and gifts God has given us, developing those in college, and then having an impact. So I think it's so important not simply to make state stu- statements excuse me, to students like, make sure you're in class, go to the library, you know, <laughs> you better be writing those papers. But rather, we want to give them, what's the reason you want to go to class? You want to stop by the library, you want to write those papers. It's because God is weaving a grand tapestry in the world. And the purpose of you having time to go and study within the university or the college setting is so that you're prepared to be a part of that grand tapestry. I think it's so important that parents repeat those things. I was a first-generation college student, and I'll tell you this much. My parents did a wonderful job, even when I felt like I didn't fit in the college campus because I didn't know many who had been through a four-year institution close to my family. Um, My parents constantly, and members of my church community, constantly reminded me, God's going to use you for something great. Make Make good use of that time there. And I think I felt less like I was being beat over the head and more like I was being encouraged along in the race. Makes perfect sense. And, you know, helping them understand in that encouragement that, uh, you know, they're, they're going to hear this word freedom a lot, but the other word that needs to be tied into it is responsibility. There you have it. And uh, to understand that uh, they, they need to maintain a level now of, of personal responsibility for themselves. Uh, you know, there, there's not going to be anybody there to say, time to get up and go to school, uh, time to go and do your laundry, time to go and eat, time to go to church, time to read, time to, uh, uh, you know, spend some study time alone in meditation with the Lord. And so yeah. it's going to be important that they that they set and establish, uh, I guess, a sense of, of spiritual discipline, too then, wouldn't it? A a very strong habit of spiritual discipline, which leads to a strong habit of educational discipline. But I think this is what's so important about spiritual discipline. Your children have to see you doing it before they Mm -hmm. can value it. Mm -hmm. And if they don't ever see you pray, they don't ever see us reading scripture, and I have three children of my own, if daddy never prays at the table, reads scripture, we have discussions, then I cannot expect them to go out (laughs) and carry that with them. Because we, we do, again, learn a lot from our parents' example. And I believe part of the reason why God calls children to honor their father and mother is not because, it's not only because he's holding the child accountable to honor them, but that also puts accountability on the parents. For you to be something that's worth honoring, (laughs) for you to demonstrate a relationship with God, so the child is to look up to you and follow your example. So I think it's so important that they have that structure. And let me say this, let let me make this last point. It's so important that we not be helicopter parents when they get into college responsibility matters. I agree with you 110%. I have experienced so many parents in my teaching career as a university faculty member who want to come and clean up all the mistakes of their children in class. And that does nothing but lead to a child who takes even less responsibility because mom and dad are eventually going to show up and save me from what I've done. So as we encourage them on in God's great plan, be spiritually disciplined, spend time in in scripture, spend time in prayer, make sure you're attending classes and you're you're planning things out. And you can have some fun, but you're also being on Smart speakers and the Odyssey. A service of Salem Media Group.